Thanks again for joining us. I thought we'd just start with a little recap of the market action. Um, Kyle, do you want to uh, sort of give your overview of, of how things are going in various uh, you know, asset classes before we delve into the details of, of any specific sector? Of course, always happy to do that. Uh, it's been an interesting week because although we're facing pressures with a, a little volatility this week, the market has still been very favorable throughout the first, I guess, nine months of the year now. We've seen the S&P 500 is now up 17% year to date. The NASDAQ is up uh, just over 15, 15.5%. We also have the Russell 2000, which is smaller company stocks, is up 12.5%. And so that rounds out the U.S. markets, all of them performing sort of exceptionally well. I guess the Dow Jones Industrial is up 10, 10.3% to start the year on a total return basis. And so when we look at the Dow, those are sort of the, the largest 30 companies in the U.S. and, uh, you know, still performing very well. The, when we look at beyond the U.S., we've seen Europe. Europe is up uh, 16% this year. So Europe is performing very well, uh, even without any assistance from the U.K. markets. The U.K. markets are only up, uh, if we look at the U.K., only up 9% this year. So performing very well, but a drag on Europe overall. So the rest of the the European uh, economies are, or at least stock markets are outperforming those of the, of the UK. Um, we have, you know, some interesting areas within the market. The something we we're likely to talk about some today is the natural gas. Natural gas is up approximately 90% year to date. Now natural gas has fallen for several years. So it's a little bit of a, a biased indicator when we see something you're moving from $1 to $2. Uh, it feels like a very big move at the time, but the, it, I mean, it is, it's still a significant move, but uh, it's relative to where it's been in the past. Uh, crude oil up 45% this year. So we're seeing, uh, I believe uh, oil's trading around $79 currently or 78. And so, uh, so oil up considerably this year. Uh, but generally, you know, when we look at the markets, most of the markets are performing, performing very well. The S&P 500 real estate index up 27%. Technology still up 17%. Uh, when we look at the, the lower performing markets or areas of the market, we have gold down, uh, over 6%. Uh, gold is trading at about, it was actually, Gold closed at 1776. And as Karen noted, a very patriotic date. Uh, we're, we're excited for that, but gold closed today at 1776. Uh, but still down six, six 6% this year. Um, and emerging markets, you know, a lot of what's pushed emerging markets down are some of the troubles in China. And so we see emerging markets down about 2.3% to start the year. And that would be, you know, that's that's the markets as a whole. Are there any areas of interest for you, Rob, or of the group where people are curious how they're doing? Well, a lot of people are interested in the uh, uh, Bitcoin volatility and price movement. Uh, Excellent. 
uh, real estate as well, kind of the aggregate real estate markets. Um, what's what's the what's the report? yeah? So Bitcoin Bitcoin is currently trading at forty three thousand four ninety five. Uh, Bitcoin is you know it's it's a very volatile asset as as we know, and so Bitcoin it's still up forty percent year to date. So owners of Bitcoin that were able to hold throughout the volatility this year have been rewarded, but Bitcoin has traded as high as 60,000 and then as low as I believe 29,000 this year. So we've seen some, some pretty big movements in, the, in Bitcoin. Uh, similarly, there's a, a similar coin called Ethereum. It's the second largest coin. Uh, Ethereum trades around $3,000 today, which is up about 300% year to date. Um, housing, housing has performed, you know, obviously exceptionally well, although we're starting to see a, we've got a smile on the screen, which is always pleasant. Um, when we look at housing, we're starting to see some slowing in the housing market in terms of sale numbers and sale prices. But we've, we've also seen, you know, exceptional growth year to date. And so housing has done exceptionally well. Uh, housing starts actually improved this last month. And so we saw about a 10% increase in housing starts in the last month. Uh, one of those reasons might be some of the pullback when we look at, you know, the, the price of lumber. I think that certainly probably slowed housing starts quite a bit because lumber ran up, uh, at a, incredibly fast pace to start the year and then had a subsequent pullback uh, afterward. And so we do see certainly housing starts starting to improve again uh, and housing prices sort of starting to, to taper off at their, at their peak levels. Uh, general economics, if we're interested, I mean, inflation this last month was 0.3%. And so if we were to, Go back 12 months, that takes us to 5.4% inflation for the last 12 months. And they're projecting out this 0.3% for the next 12 months, which would mean we're at, you know, 3.7% uh, for, for the next 12 months, which would be much higher than the Fed estimates of, of 2%. Um, unemployment, unemployment's at 5.2%. Something really interesting that happened with the employment market is we've now had a flip-flop between the number of job openings with the unemployment number. And so now we're at the point where we have considerably more job openings than we have unemployed, uh, which gives a lot of choice to those unemployed to choose which job openings they want to go to. Or, or not go to, of course, is always an option. But it's a, you know, there's, our, there's over a two million gap between the open jobs and the current unemployment. Great. Uh, thanks, Kyle. That was very informative. Um, <clears throat> I think the topics that we, we believe that, that people are interested in is taking that data and talking about inflation. What is the prognosis for inflation? Um, how might that impact interest rates? Uh, and interest rates, of course, drive a, a good number of the uh, price 
price of, of different asset classes, stocks, bonds, <clears throat> uh, real estate. Um, and uh, as usual, there's debate about whether there's the, the prospect for continued high inflation. Um, uh, and uh, so that's one topic that we'll cover here in a minute, as well as I think topically the uh, uh, the impact of events in China uh, with the real estate markets in China, the real construction company, development company um, uh, meltdown and how that might impact China and, and uh, the rest of the world uh, to some degree or another. So those are uh, uh, two of the topics I think that we, we'd like to start with. Um, let's start with inflation and talk about sort of what's happened in the last year and a half with, with the sort of very, very brief but intense slowdown with COVID, worldwide COVID, and then the very acute recovery or attempted recovery, uh, which drove prices high, very high, um, and the supply chain shortages and difficulties that persist today, uh, both in terms of semiconductors for computers and, and, and cars in particular, um, we have a very, very major impact on, on major industries with, uh, with shortages. And that, that will continue even though, uh, uh, aggregate demand, uh, uh, came back strongly. The availability of supplies and, and consumer goods in some areas was, was severely constrained. And, um, <clears throat> uh, without, without waxing philosophic about it, um, the, the impact, of course, was inflation in the price of commodities. Lumber is one of the few that, that went up, uh, uh, to a, a great degree and then has come back down. Uh, I think primarily because the U.S. and Canada, uh, we, we, we have our own domestic supplies of, of, of those commodities, but, um, things like steel, and uh, semiconductors, precious, the, the, the resource metals that are used in electronics, which are really global in character, have, have not necessarily come down. And so that continues to be a driver of, of inflation. Another driver of inflation, as Kyle mentioned, is the jobs that um, uh, uh, the, the starting salaries and general wages and general political climate is for a highly, high, highly accelerated wage levels. And that has started to impact consumer prices as well. Um, uh, not necessarily a bad thing for, um, for the people who are getting those wage increases. I saw a statistic that given the inflation increase that a lot of the wage increases have, have been kind of canceled out in terms of purchasing power so that people who are on the lower end of the wage scale are, are not necessarily, uh, greatly better off today than they were before because of the impacts of inflation. Um, and you just. Well, I would just say it would be a question of long-term inflation though, right? It was where we have a potentially 
temporary higher prices due to mismatch of supply and demand and, and kind of global issues in the supply chain leading to a lot of these price increases that that maybe you know are are only temporary at least in the in the more near term right good so um one impact of the inflation has been the beginnings of discussion at the Fed of tapering off with the extreme amount of monetary um, support that the Fed has supplied the economy since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, uh, the, The size of the injection of money into the system over the last, say, year and a half was uh, uh, 67% more than the money that was injected during the great financial crisis of 07 and 08. So in in the volume of money that was created and put in the system in in the matter of four months, uh, 167% of what what of the government support happened in about a quarter of the time frame. That's the extent and the speed in which uh, the central bank responded to the economic slowdown when basically everything, you know, everybody was told to stay home or whatever. And Wouldn't that be in part due to the lasting impacts of what occurred in 2000? coming out and saying, okay, we need to greatly stimulate the economy and, and as quickly as possible to avoid kind of, our, you know, long out from a economic downturn. Your voice kind of went in and out there a little bit, Kyle. Um, so I don't know if you can shorten that to a question and repeat it or not, just for the... Yes, yeah, we're... Always, uh, internet problems. Um, the, the question is just, was it an overreaction to what occurred in 2008? Okay. Good. Right. Because we, we were trying to get out of it faster. And, you know, that may well be true. Who knows, uh, about it? It's easy to be a sideline quarterback about whether it's too much or too little or too fast or, you know, second guessing the Fed is not is not a efficacious activity. Certainly, the the fear was that there would be a huge retrenchment, and that the size of the economy and the the tools were just available, and so they utilized everything that they could, and and it worked really because before the resurgence of the Delta variant. And the, you know, with the positive news of the emergence of the vaccines and the hope that, that, that that would work in terms of opening up, you know, particularly in places like New York, which were hard hit the, and, and continue to be hard hit in terms of hospitality and uh, tourism. Um, uh, uh, that the, the goal was to reignite this, uh, economy. And so, Whatever the reasons were, the impact is the same as that, that, that the Fed now really has very little 
breathing room to not talk about ringing back their support for the economy. And that will, that will pose a challenge in 2023, maybe next year, earlier, the market tends to anticipate, you know, by nine months or so, what, what's going to go on in the real economy. Um, so the, the challenge is, really what happens with the asset classes that we're involved with uh, uh, if if this um, sort of tapering off of government support takes place. Uh, the last several times, it hasn't been pretty, at least at the outset. Uh, it's, it's likely a good thing in the long term, but involves, um, you know, movement of asset classes. Give it. That went over very well. Thank you for the answer, Katie Eaton. The, the, the summary is uh, Kyle saying that inflation may be a short term phenomenon. Oh, it I'm sorry, it was some, someone appropriately. Having lag in the internet. Okay. Um, anyway, why don't we stop there and see if any questions or comments about about what we've talked about so far? Um, all right. Um, so. I'll summarize what we've we've covered on inflation, or shall we shall we move on to the the next topic? Rob, I had one question. Um, did did Chairman Powell say anything about tapering and in interest rates uh, and inflation today? He, I don't know. he did. Yes, oh. he actually he said that the earliest they would expect to start is in November and then interest rates wouldn't be something that they would consider until mid to late next year is my understanding and so uh, but they said that the earliest they would expect to see any tapering would be in November and of course he's you know uh, lobbying for a job as well at the same time so all of his remarks need to be interpreted in that in that light it needs um, to be accommodative. Yes, that, that's right. And, um, you know, it's been a very long time since, since they've attempted successfully to, uh, uh reduce when, when we say government support, the government buys its own bonds in the market, which assures interest rates staying low. It's like being your own you know, customer so that you can drive prices down. That's that's been the the mechanism by which the government has uh, uh, made sure that interests stay low, and it's a it's a cause for long term concern on most people's part. Um, uh, but we won't digress and talk about the deficit and the debt ceiling and all that kind of stuff just yet, um, because those are just open ended topics that for the last several years have seemed to be somewhat irrelevant to, you know, the quarter by quarter 
uh, action in the market. Um, just to keep moving on, um, uh, let's talk about the, the economy in China, if that's okay. And uh, real, it, we'll bring us back to this country and talk about real estate prices uh, in general. Um, and Kyle, do you have a, a kind of an opening statement about the, the Chinese company and the impact that it might have on their domestic economy? Yep. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of short term risk that present themselves in China. Uh, the government is really trying to clamp down on the economy and institute greater control over, over sort of everything that's going on. And with that, what their, what their stated objective is, is that they're trying to create good growth. And, uh, but you're seeing a lot of clamp downs everywhere from real estate, gambling to video games. Uh, those have kind of been the, the highlighted areas where they're, they're having clamp downs recently. Uh, we saw it with the, the Evergrande, uh, and various gaming companies within China. We saw a big pullback in the Chinese uh, gambling stocks. So there's a lot of worries coming out of Macau where there's gambling, whether or not China's really going to, you know, institute greater control over those, those areas. And so I'd say it's really about, it's about government control over, over growth. And is, is what I've seen. So, so clearly if you read the, you know, the newspapers, the, the, Chairman uh, is embarked on a program to reassert control and whatever the stated reasons of equalizing wealth in China, uh, continuing on Mao's vision, whatever, whatever the truth might be. Clearly, the Chinese uh, government has a, a, a great deal more power over their economy than the U.S. government does over the U.S. economy. And so the, the issue of, uh, the, uh, what's the name of the, the developer ever? Evergrande. Evergrande. Um, the Chinese government can absorb and, and, and manage and control the extent of the losses, um, uh, without serious financial repercussions for the government itself. Yeah. It, the, I just say, oh, the quote I read today that I have here is just saying, Resolving issues and defaults without provoking financial panics is something that the Chinese regulators have a lot of practice at. And they dealt with it before. It's, it's worth talking about the culture uh, of real estate investing in China because the Chinese have looked at, at real estate as a reservoir of value, much like people here have over the long term, but because they have such a short history of private ownership um, and they're restricted from owning gold personally, um, real estate in the sense of owning an apartment or two or three is considered a savings account. And it's not dependent on the cash flow from having it rented. It's, it's a part of the culture that real estate does not go down. And that if you own two or three apartments and they're vacant, it, it doesn't really matter because 
it's a form of currency as opposed to uh, uh, something else. And so um, it's it's why the Chinese development companies could build these cities that are vacant and um, and and sell the apartments, even though there were there's the people weren't there to fill them. Not that there aren't people elsewhere in China. And so what the what what the government is challenged to do is to take people's savings because they're the Chinese culture is a saving culture um, and try and channel that into a a more diverse kind of way, both to promote a domestic economy in terms of not relying on exports to the U.S. and Europe, but to rely on internal demand. And so this is a huge experiment of dialing back what's gone on for 30 years, which is to say, okay, market forces take over. And it worked, obviously, where, where a tremendous number of people were were lifted out of poverty with a lot of social dislocation. And, and so their primary goal is to maintain social stability and to somehow rein in this assumption that property prices will always go up. And it's the same thing that the Chinese stock market goes through. And, and we have not been big investors in direct investors in the Chinese stocks because the government will do a start where they'll they'll promote stock ownership and then they'll dial it back and and these are very big kind of social movements and social control issues as Kyle was referring to and they there's, clearly cannot I was just going to say there's a great chart that you can see sometime and I'll I'll see if I can pull it up but basically it it shows the growth of the Chinese stock market which remains relatively flat over the past 20 years and then obviously the growth of the Chinese economy which is parabolic going going almost straight up and so there's there's been a real separation between those two and that's that's where the institutional control piece is coming in is saying that they allow it to rise and then there's a pullback consistently and you you've seen it quite a bit so now that we've we've addressed the issue about the impact on their domestic economy, which is going to be moderated by the, the Communist Party's control, um, the question is, does it impact our economy, Western economies? Is there a contagion kind of factor to what might go on in China? And um, uh, I, I, I think the summary of it is, of that is only very, very moderate. Um, uh, uh, I was going to call on Kyle for statistics about how important China is to both our, our exports and our imports. Um, uh, but before, before Kyle talks about that, there's one, there's one interesting, I think, lesson to try and glean from what's going on is that, um, the Chinese companies issue junk bonds much in the same way that U.S. and European companies issue junk bonds. One of the things that very few people pay attention to is the difference between a junk bond is a, a company that doesn't have strong finances, right? But they still can go out and borrow money. And the question is, how much interest do they pay? In the U.S., the interest that you earn on junk bonds is very, very modest. I, I don't know what it is, Kyle. Is it three or four percent? Yeah, that 
it'd be three percent. Yeah, on the on the higher grade junk, but it's the the spreads are very thin, right? And so the what you get paid for the risk is only minimal. And and it's a sign of the desperation that we all have as investors to earn income. That's the bottom line is where can you put your money that's not at risk of principal default? How much interest can you earn? That's the basic investment question, right? And it's why people have driven into high yield bonds, junk bonds is what they used to call them. And why the interest rate on U.S. junk bonds is so low is because the, the discernment of risk has sort of gone away. In China, the property companies that we're talking about issue junk bonds as well. And they could default. They certainly, that's, that's the immediate issue is that they're going to suspend interest payments that are due on their bonds, not that they're going to go bankrupt tomorrow, but that they miss an interest payment tomorrow, Thursday. It's probably already Thursday in China now, who knows? Um, and, uh, and, and so the, the, the thing to look at for me that's interesting is, well, people just said, well, they're so big, they're too big to fail. They're going to pay their interest payments. And and if you invest in like international junk bond funds as a U.S. investor, some of those funds have Chinese bonds inside of them. And that's the crossover between the domestic Chinese economy and the U.S. investor world is if you're in an international junk bond fund and which which are, are, were, were, were not, but but people are because they're they're desperate for yield for for a higher interest rate. So the question becomes, I, and I I don't think the Chinese government guarantees the payment for junk bonds. I think they what they're looking to do is to make sure that the Chinese public doesn't go crazy and try and dump all their real estate all at once. Right? That's that's their goal, not to protect people who bought junk bond funds. And, and we're relying on this high rate of interest. So um, anyway, back to the it's issue. Pretty, yeah, well, just pretty interesting on that topic is that we're seeing a lot of calls now to basically remove China from the emerging market funds and kind of create China in, into its own almost middle market where China is its own economy it's separate from emerging markets because of the way it can, you know, if it had a problem with the Chinese junk bonds, it would move the entire index. It represents too large a piece of the emerging markets right now. And it really should sort of be considered a different class. And people don't, people don't tend to think about it until there's a, a disruption like we've had this week. And then they're like, Oh wait, is, is China actually different than Indonesia and, and Brazil and, and all the other emerging markets? And so, um, so the impact of China on the U.S. economy and markets, um, uh, I think we believe is moderate, except for investors who have reached down deep to get higher yields. Uh, and that's certainly not the case with, with our portfolios, as far as I know. Correct. Thank you. Good. Um, I, I'm, well, let's let's go on with the next topic. Um, Good. Maybe uh, we can just we could just come back to inflation briefly, Rob. 
Yeah. We just had a we had a question just saying, okay, so what are the insights or strategies for like how do we manage portfolios in the face of rising inflation? And so I can I can say the the first place we're not going is we're not buying long government bonds that pay one and a quarter percent. That would be the the first place we we don't want to go because on a on a real return basis we would be in the we'd be in the negative there. Now, generally areas that perform best uh, under rising inflation are going to be commodities, uh, energy, which is sort of commodity related, uh, precious metals, which we're seeing actually a inverse with gold this year, which is, which is very unique, but, uh, as well as real estate and then, and being investors in the stock market is another place where, uh, people typically go to, you know, combat inflation, right? We have hard assets or, Assets that are, you know, that rise with, with inflation. Uh, real estate's a big one, obviously, especially with interest rates super low is that as we move forward, that cost of borrowing becomes essentially more affordable as inflation goes up. Uh, you know, it's funny, uh, I read earlier too, is just that to combat inflation, we should be buying emerging market bonds, which is, which is somewhere we don't we don't normally invest, but it's, it's sort of, we would, you'd be taking on that risk in order to combat inflation. So that's not an area we're actually looking at adding to our portfolios, but, but it is one of the tools that, that many investors use to, to combat inflation. Do you have other thoughts, Rob? Well, I think our long-term strategy has always been to diversify and to have some commodities, some gold, uh, um, uh, real estate, both on the credit uh, lending side. Um, and and um, so, you know, our, our, our long-term strategy has always been on the short end of the bonds to have bonds that adjust to higher interest rates, which, which we haven't seen in a long time. So, we're not particularly worried about inflation um, uh, in terms of the effect on, on our portfolios. Interest rates are a different matter. And there's a lot of talk about whether we can have persistent inflation and still have ultra low interest rates. And I think that is possible because the, the, the impact of higher interest rates would be so major on the government debt market. I, I always come back to that. The, the, the U.S. government debt is, U.S., the U.S. government is the largest single debt debtor in the world. It has borrowed more money than any other government or any other entity by far. 24 trillion currently. And this is something that lurks in the background and, um, uh, it is very hard to conceive of what it would mean if there's, I'm not talking about a default, but disruption in the U.S. government debt market because there hasn't been one and there's no game plan for it. Um, uh, there's a lot of talk about the impact of, of cryptocurrencies 
And, and I think it's quite likely, I haven't run this by Kyle, who tends to be more reasonable and intelligent about these than myself, uh, that the, that each government will likely issue its own cryptocurrency, electronic currency, uh, there, and, and slowly outlaw other currencies or bring them under the realm of their regulatory, uh, auspices. So, uh, and I think they're already starting to do that in terms of tracking these, these ransomware payments. That, um, and that the, if the governments, the Western governments moved electronic currency, much in the same way that in, and India and China are likely to do that first. Um, uh, India ha- and have already started on that. Um, that that will allow, which is a little esoteric, it will allow the government to keep interest rates lower than it would otherwise with a cash a, a component of the economy. That is, by exerting more control over currency, by making it all trackable, that that they can do, they have they have more tools to, to lower interest rates, even into negative territory which is, again, a little bit mind-boggling to the normal person, is how can you have negative interest rates? Who in their right mind would buy a bond that you lose money on, capital, right? It it makes no intrinsic sense to an individual, but on on a macro government scale, you can see the advantage is that if you have $24 trillion in debt, it would kind of be nice to make some money by being a debtor, right? I mean, that's like everyone's dream is, hey, I think I'll borrow money and make money off of you who's lending me money. And and that's not inconceivable in a cryptocurrency world. It is, it is, it is inconceivable in a world where the government can't control the cash, cash movements around the world and 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 that's the direction that we're moving uh so it's quite likely that that will benefit the stock market and the real estate market going forward because the lower interest rates are the more valuable assets like stocks and real estate are the lower mortgage rates are the higher the value of property right there's a there's a direct inverse correlation between the two. Lower interest rates, higher value. It's called the capitalization rate. Um, and the same thing is true about stocks. So uh, um, it's, 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 it's good to be an investor. Uh, oh, how good it is. Don't you think, Kyle? I agree. It's good there to be go. an investor. All right. So... Um, maybe we'll move on to other topics. What was on your magic list, Kyle? Yes, I'm, I'm looking at the magic list and we're, we're happy if anyone wants to interject a, a question in here. Um, the, the next question, oh, debt ceiling. That's the, that's the other big news of this week. And so, uh, for those of you who may not have been watching, uh, there's a, uh, fight in Congress currently or a disagreement over the debt ceiling. Uh, 
interesting statistic here, Rob. There's been 78 raises in the debt ceiling since 1960. Or on, on average, we raise our debt ceiling every nine months. Um, That's what we call fiscal responsibility. Yes. And as we, as we look at it, there's been 49 of those increases have been under Republicans and 29 have been under Democratic. Uh, that the debt ceiling would be tied in with the new tax bill as a topic, the, the proposal for the infrastructure bill and then the, whatever you call the $3.5 trillion. What do we call that? It's called the recon, the reconciliation bill currently is what it's called. I love that word reconciliation. That really brings a warm feeling to me. Um, and what are the likelihoods of uh, the tax, you know, what are the proposed tax changes? Uh, So let's talk about the debt ceiling. Clearly the debt ceiling will be raised. The government will, if it shuts down, that would really be, you know, a shame from some people's perspectives and, and not others, but, but it will not be out of business for a while. There's too many, too many unemployment checks to send out if that really happened. If the government shuts that, I mean, it affects all of, affects all of the government, right? And so not just unemployment checks, but everything from social security to military, uh, salaries and payments. I mean, everything shuts down as it, I mean, we've seen it happen before. And so it's a very temporary thing that, that occurs. Right. So if we, if we postulate the debt ceiling will be raised and that there, there will be no, uh, uh, that what, what, what about the, the likelihood of taxes going up given that it does not matter at the current time what the U.S.'s debt level is? That someday it might, but we're not postulating any kind of a, a day of reckoning anytime soon. Uh, we could, but that would have to be offline and over a drink. And um, so we're postulating a raise in the in the debt ceiling. And will there be changes to the tax law? Is it necessary for people on the call to be aware of those changes? Um, and what should they do about it uh, between now and the end of the year? Do you want to start, uh, uh, Nijoni? Do you want to comment about that? Or Karen James or uh, uh, Contessa? Any comments about the tax bill? We're trying to put our staff, you know, forward here. So we're putting them a little bit on the spot. You don't mind, do you? Karen, Karen is unmuted. So I, I think I we have unmuting. a taker. Well, I, th- I think it's hard to say whether or not at this point, I, as we've been looking at analysts and pundits over the last six months or so, nobody expects that this tax bill will come through, but we'll see what will happen. I think the Democrats have an opportunity to push some things through. Um, the, but the, the likely tax increases are moderate among the top income earners, a surtax on people making 5 million or more. We only have five or six people on the call who make five or six million or more, uh, Kyle being one of them. And um uh, the main change is the estate tax provision. That's one of the main changes. Do you want to comment on that, Karen? Um, 
The, I know, and also I, I think the capital gains as the other, uh, the right. raising that to 25%. Correct. Um, and then, uh, I think we're supposed to be careful that we're including, uh, our sources in this for the, uh, for the record. So according to Bloomberg, there was an article about, um, pulling grant trusts into taxable estates, taxing the sale of grantor trusts to the owners. Um, there's also a proposal to decrease the lifetime exemption for passing an estate to a spouse. Um, so there are several things on the table uh, that could impact estates. The, uh, the provision now is that in 2025, the amount being able to be passed free of estate taxes was slated to go back down from 11 or 12 million to five or 6 million per person. And they're talking about accelerating that to the end of this year. Yeah, they would move it back to the previous level at an inflation adjusted amount. Right. And so the current, the current exemption per individual is 11.7 million. And so I think the, if we were to revert back, it would be around 6.3 million per person would be the level that we'd see if we were to revert. There also, there was a lot of talk previously, you know, of eliminating the step up at death and they've since that, that doesn't appear in the bill currently. And so it's something that was part of the original Biden proposal that they've, they've backed away from. And then also in addition, we were speaking of cryptocurrency earlier. There's also a proposal to close the cryptocurrency loophole and to treat them treat it the same as other securities. For so wash in sales. terms of in terms of capital gains. Right. Good. All that's very edifying and interesting. Um the uh um it's it's hard to make comment about the politics of, of the bill. I think Kyle and I were talking that the the chances of the current budget proposal going through uh, we can, we think are rather small that tacking the infrastructure bill into the reconciliation, uh, uh, that, that in its current form is unlikely to happen. So that leaves a lot of room for change between now and, and, and whenever. Um, the markets tend to like inaction on the part of government. Um, and, uh, so, as Kyle noted, the performance of the markets have, has, has been strong this year, mostly concentrated in, in the early months or uh, of the year. Um, so we don't see any major upsets to the market based on, on Congress activity. No. I think it's also interesting to note the last few times that, you know, just speaking of the market and the response to the Fed, uh, the last few times that we've heard Chairman Powell speak, the market has gone up in the morning before the announcement. He speaks, the market kind of tanks. And that's a technical term. And today, uh, that really didn't happen. It was up 400, maybe 47 at some point, and it went down a bit. But um, I think there's a sense that people are getting more comfortable, perhaps, with the Fed's plan uh, and also that, you know, it just keeps getting pushed off. It was a little bit more, um, 
there, there were, you know, it was a little bit more clarity in terms of dates and timing today, but um, I don't know, Kyle, if you agree, but it feels like investors are, are not being spooked as much by Powell's statements. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what's happening is we're seeing them sort of continue uh, what they call the, the dovish tone, right? Where they say they're going to taper, but not yet. They want to raise rates, but they really want to do it in the future. And so there's a continuance of this kind of strategy of just moving things down the road and not actually not necessarily dealing with anything now. And that's sort of what Rob was mentioning is that he's got a, he has a job to protect. And, uh, you know, the, the desire is to kind of keep people happy at the moment. Right. Which, you know, is not a great, uh, uh, underlying thesis in the long term. No, no. I mean, right. I mean, it's a, a temporary political or a, a move that works for now, but long term, it, it's likely to create issues, I would imagine. But good. Um, questions or comments from anyone in the in the gallery, truly it is a gallery we're looking at here on our screen. Um, certainly there, there must be burning questions that you've wondered about in the wee hours of the morning about the markets um, and uh, uh, or other kind of macroeconomic issues. And just to say again, we received one question via email. So if you're not sure how to submit or you're shy, you can email us. Uh, you can raise your hand um, here on Zoom as well. Or, or if you're an attorney or a former attorney, you can blurt out as as want, as you're used to doing and interrupting the rest of us. We 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 appreciate that. Um, and uh, most of my good friends are attorneys. I have to admit. Uh, well. So for those of you listening on the phone, we got a we got a thumbs up from a from someone, but not a raised hand. So looks like there's a question. We from have Jane two raised hands. Oh, great! Let's get a question here. Amy, why don't you go first? Okay, thank you. Hi, everyone. I, I'm joining by phone, so I don't have my camera on. Um, and I'm sorry I joined late, and I wonder if you already covered this, but I'm just curious as we see you know, supply shortages um, across the nation and in many different industries, you know, what we can expect um, as far as um, the market and, you know, do you guys foresee that kind of changing anytime soon? It's a great question. Very, very uh, concerning. Uh, most people don't realize, and I, maybe everyone does realize, I don't do a lot of shopping since I don't cook and whatever, you, you go into the supermarket and a lot of things are missing from the supermarkets, right? You go into the uh, lumber store or Home Depot and there are a lot of goods that are not there. And, and that's been true for six months or so. The prognosis is, is not good for the alleviation of those conditions. Um, we did talk, touch on it, Jamie, but I, I think it's definitely worth talking about because, um, it has an impact not, not just on people's sort of personal lives, but on the company's, 
uh, you look at the car companies and the computer chip shortage, they just will not be producing cars like, like the demand is there for. Um, and, uh, um, and so obviously the price of used cars has gone up dramatically. It's very difficult to find used cars. Uh, uh, so, um, the, the, uh, the timing of when that would be alleviated is unknown. Um, uh, both because of, you know, and it's interesting to look at it. Well, COVID related downs or slowdowns, uh, the tariff, kind of the tariff war that Trump got, which basically closed off the, um, the, the free, free import of, and, 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 to a lesser extent, lumber. Um, these are very important issues for the costs of businesses and, uh, of, and the production of housing units. It is very difficult to build anything uh, uh, without six months, 12 months delays for the acquisition of supply. Um, and so even though it's not really in the price of assets like stocks or, or real estate yet, it's definitely going to have a long-term impact. And the, I hate to run my mouth like this, but so be it. The, when you listen to what the grocery store uh, owners are saying, they expect it to get worse. Is, is that your understanding, Kyle? Yeah, I think what we're we're seeing a lot of, especially even as, I mean, obviously we have the issues with the gap between unemployment and the open jobs, right? And so there's there's pieces of the supply chain that are never going to be, or not never, but that aren't going to be fixed, right? By vacancies uh, that are that are unfilled in in certain job areas, but we're also seeing issues in you know a lot of our a lot of our goods come from foreign countries and they come from a lot of countries that have not had the capabilities to vaccinate their populations or control the spread of the the delta variant and and so what's happening is we're we're seeing sort of continued disruption uh it's it's sort of like a integrated disruption along the supply chain. So from everywhere to where we're here in the U.S., where people aren't going back to work and you know supporting uh, the kind of the movement of goods to all the way to the the original source, which we're seeing, say, in a country like I don't know the the Philippines or somewhere, right, where where we're shipping things from. Uh, there's a variety. I mean, anything from the shortage of containers which have to move goods and services around. It's, it's, it's a, it's a really big complicated problem that, that we're sort of, I guess we're having a hard time getting out of as we, you know, continue within this environment. But there's, as Rob mentioned, there's, you know, there's, there's political pressures there as well when we look at tariffs and, and sort of the interaction of our, our governments, kind of those geopolitical risks that, that continue to exist. Clearly China is. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think Vietnam and Nike are a great example of that. A lot of Adidas and uh, Nike's products are made in Vietnam. 
China is definitely a major factor in that equation. Um, and you saw the recent sort of submarine deal with uh, Britain and Australia and the U.S. Besides, you know, um, uh, aggravating the French, the the issue of the Chinese, the way that they are are um, moving in Africa and trying to control more of the resources, the natural resources, the component parts. Um, that is a major factor because really, uh, you know, going back to before Trump, the, the trade was going, you know, crazy with China and was a major help to the U.S. economy, the, the lower cost of goods from China and the availability of goods. And that, that has, has gone away and likely will remain away for, for a while, um, as, as the economic kind of warfare will, you know, I, I, I don't think it matters what, what, what the administration says. Uh, they, they're definitely aware of this long-term stakes about, about strategic industries. And, um, uh, you know, that's probably a, I was just saying, maybe we go to the next, Good. the next question. We have S- Steve and Gary. I'm not Mike. sure how serious my question is. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to butt in over somebody. But anyway, I saw on TV the other night, this is going to be terrible, that out of different, many different kinds of bourbon, 42 of our favorite bourbons will maybe have a shortage because there's no caps, bottle caps available to plastic caps to put on those bottles. And, and maybe not even bottles to put the bourbon in. That's 40, 42 different kind. Now, what are we going to do about that? That's terrible news, Stephen. The question is what percent of the bourbon consumption does that represent? It, we, we see the nominal number of brands, but you know, does that, does that impact materially the availability of, of drink? And if so, what economic opportunity does that present for domestic moonshine makers? That's really, and does that present an investment opportunity for, for a domestic startup company? Cause that's, you know, Kyle has moved to tequila, but I am stuck on bourbon without a doubt. So there you go. We have a problem. We have a problem, Houston. We're, uh, we're going to do a pooled fund to buy bourbon barrels. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Gary, it's your turn at long last. Well, you know, the previous questions have been a good segue into mine, which is about electric vehicles and and what you see as the prospects uh, of investing in that sector and whether you're doing any of that. And if so, how you're doing. Well, we we spend a lot of time thinking about electric vehicles and uh yeah you know the the hardest part about investing in the new age technologies is understanding which companies are going to be the biggest winners and which companies are at an appropriate valuation uh without naming company names you know we have our 
kind of the big talked about electric vehicle manufacturers that come in at a, at a very rich valuation. And so it's basically saying, does that valuation make sense for the long term? And that's how we're always looking at it is saying, okay, you know, I mean, investors in these companies were big winners last year and less so this year. But, you know, the, the move over time is going to be toward electric vehicles and, and greener technologies. It's just a matter of getting into things at the right asset prices. Uh, one of the things that, that we look at quite a bit is we, we spend a lot of time evaluating a lot of tangentially related products. So companies that are maybe part suppliers to the electric vehicles, people that might be making a, a powertrain or a computer chip, uh, semiconductor companies that are related to the electric vehicle trade because uh, they're, they're less talked about than the actual car manufacturers themselves. So we spend a lot of time looking at sort of pockets in the market that, that might prevent, present some opportunity, which, which isn't looked at as closely as kind of the stuff we see in the news every day. Just to add on, if you look at the Chinese market, which they made a, you know, in the last several years, a concerted push towards electric vehicles, maybe it's just the unique Chinese way of doing things, but that 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 sector is in real trouble. They have misallocated resources. The, the companies that have been successful from a volume perspective have not been profitable because again, it's, it's not a market-driven economy. And as in electric fuel cell technology in our country, like solar power, which, which, you know, is a naturally appealing because of the movement towards solar power, uh, it's been very hard to find long-term holds uh, because of the price cutting of the Chinese companies. This is pre-tariff. Um, and so the fact that the market is, looks like it's going to expand dramatically does not mean that it presents a stock buying opportunity at, at this time, unless, like Kyle was saying, you're early in and you're, you know, like what private companies are likely to be acquired. And that would be true for nuclear power as well, for example, which is something that, that Kyle has invested in, uh, you know, a fusion company. Um, and there are probably 10 companies working on small nuclear power plants or fusion as opposed to fission oriented plant, uh, plants. And, you know, one out of 10 will be huge successes and the other nine will not. And, and so it's, it becomes a question of, you know, knowledge and, and luck, I guess, uh, combined. Yeah. And I think, I think in that, you know, similar to the same subject when we talk about those solar cells where, You've seen that kind of race to the bottom who can produce the cheapest solar cell, right? And, uh, you know, China, China pushing prices down with theirs and U.S. trying to keep up using subsidies and such, where instead you find a, a company that makes power inverters that takes the energy from the solar cells to your house 
where you sort of have a more secure market and it's a specialized product that that you don't face that race to the bottom in. And so I, there's still opportunities in each of these kind of silos. It's just where is the right place and and do they do they actually exist or have they has it already been exploited? Um, we we had a question just on on dollar flows, Rob. The idea, you know, as we see, say we see turmoil both in the Chinese real estate market or, you know, in various markets around the world, what does that mean in terms of, you know, are we, would we expect to still see dollar flows into the U.S. real estate market, right? As we've seen in years past where you have a lot of, you know, uh, external investment in U.S. real estate markets that are caused by things like like the Evergrande crisis in China. Well, uh, that that clearly has been the case and is likely going to be the case. It's interesting to look at the New York City real estate market, which was decimated by COVID and the sort of seeming exodus of people out of the large cities um, and prices falling where uh, people thought that they could never fall, right? For in, especially in Manhattan, um, the price of office buildings and residential real estate. Um, and uh, just recently, I guess was it Amazon that announced the purchase of an office building at Google? Google, Very... right? Oh. Um, my my Google tried to see what it could help with when we said that. So just so everyone knows, they're, they're always listening to you. It's a wonderful, warming, comforting feeling to know that, that we're never alone. And um, uh, uh, so it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important point for real estate investors to, to anticipate, will people be moving back from the suburbs? When might that happen? Um, uh, it, it's been crazy the growth in prices. I, you know, we have people in Hawaii on the phone on this, and you know, in Los Angeles where you would think prices would be going down, but they have not. Yeah, so I, I pulled up the like the Case Shiller Home Price Index before this, and and LA actually is the currently the most expensive market in the U.S. And, uh, you know, New York is pretty fascinating. We've seen a real, you know, real pullback in New York. And so New York sits, uh, right between Phoenix and Las Vegas on the home price index. And which is mean it's a factor of, of earnings as well, but it's, uh, you've really seen that fall. So the top markets are all West Coast markets. It's LA, San Diego and Seattle right now. And notably, San Francisco is is not where traditionally was up there with New York City. New York City and San Francisco were the most expensive. And, you know, there's quality of life issues, uh, work habit, whether people will be working from home, part-time, full-time, the quality of services, um, uh, education, uh, the dangers of of congregation, uh, uh, sort of physical from COVID, the perceived risk of people in urban environments like New York, where 
uh, public transportation is key to the operation of the city. Um, uh, but all of that, you know, is unknown. Um, but clearly the prices continue to, to, uh, go up due to low interest rates. I think that's the key to always remember is that both stock prices and real estate prices are highly dependent on the level of interest rates. And interest rates and actually, I guess, related to the, the, the prior question, you know, what we saw is that, you know, between 17 to 20% of all purchases are from real estate investors right now. So you, you basically have one fifth of the market that's being eaten up just through people that are buying properties for investment purposes. Which relates back to what we were saying about China before, mm-hmm. which is probably a higher percent of real estate purchase were made for pure investment purposes as opposed to, to, to living, uh, you know, for people residing or renting. So there, the, the, the question is, is there a housing shortage in this country given the growth in, um, in, a, uh, is the growth in housing units and under construction keeping pace with demand? Uh, uh, which is a, a complicated question given that the rate of new household formation, that is new families, uh, is, you know, was very low, uh, uh, for an extended period of time because of the affordability factor that it was hard for young people to buy first time homes without the help of their parents. Uh, really a nationwide phenomenon is what salary level does someone need to be at in order to afford a, a new home, given that prices in places like Portland or Honolulu or New York City um, uh, or Santa Fe even, uh, where we are, is that within the range of people making, you know, uh, uh, nursing, teaching, uh, kind of entry-level professional positions and uh, uh uh, I don't know really where that stands, but so I think the demand for new housing continues to grow, but uh, the supply is somewhat constrained by the factors that we were talking about in terms of materials. Um, uh, so it's, it's a, an interesting phenomenon. And the entry, as Kyle was saying, of investors, the biggest buyers of single family residences are not are not uh, consumers, but are the large investment uh, private equity firms that are accumulating millions of units of single family residences for rental. Uh, and and um, um, I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. It's another place that presents a, a strong uh, investment opportunity, particularly when we're you know, working against inflation. So just a interesting note. Um, Kyle? Yes. Hi. Hi, this is Lori. I'm, um, may I ask a question, please? I'm, please. Um, yes, thank you. Um, you're welcome. Um, regarding um, the shortage in the grocery stores and getting the goods, um, then in understanding that through um, – you know, we're getting, um, Rob was saying the shortage of containers and stuff like that, but also the tariffs and also are we having problems with actually, 
um, getting it from the terror, getting it from the, when they're coming into the United States, um, like, you know, on, on, and I'm just going to say like maybe ammo, there's not enough pieces like coming in to be able to make, you know, the actual um, ammunition because of, I'm not sure if it's regulations, if it's the COVID, um, I mean, that's one commodity, but that's, you know, I like to see, you know, what are we doing in the United States to um, alleviate a lot of that? And are companies finally kind of doing a home, like a home base kind of thing saying, hey, we need to, we need to start producing these materials. This kind of um, shortage is killing companies because we don't have it. So things are shutting down. So is there... Is there companies or is there um, a widespread understanding of we need to take control back into our life, United States, um, and start making things here? With that said, is like, you know, I had heard that China has a lot of United States property. Is there a percentage that any country can purchase United States so that... You know, we're, we're in debt, so much debt. Um, we have restricted commodities coming in, tariffs or whatever it is, but they, but they own, um, properties here, you know? Yeah. And so, I, I mean, that, I, I find that very, um, disturbing actually that any country has, um, the rights that are, is actually purchasing so much of the United States. You know, Lori, um, I don't think that the the property ownership of any foreign country is material to our domestic policies. Um, it's like we used to worry about the amount of the U.S. Treasury debt that was owned by Japan and China, and the the Chinese have been reducing their their ownership of U.S. debt, which is probably a more direct fulcrum uh, on the U.S. economy than owning real estate because real estate is a illiquid asset. Okay. Um, the commodity shortage is complicated and is, uh, we talked about the tariffs, we talked about the the supply chain both and the transportation that if you look at the the, 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 the chart of the containers that are, that are waiting to unload in, um, Long Beach, California. You know, there are goods, there's thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of containers with goods that can't unload because the port capacity is diminished and whatever, whatever the reasons are, whether it's the work rules or the, you know, the transportation infrastructure, that's one of the points of the infrastructure bill in front of Congress is to improve the port capacity of the country, which doesn't happen overnight. Um, if you, if your question about the, does that mean that the U.S. will start to produce things domestically, right? That was, I think, one of your main questions and you used ammunition, but let's use a more widely important commodity, which is plastics, uh, because the, the, the production of resin and, and steel, which is holding up, uh, you know, whether it's the bottles for, I forget what the good, the, 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 the product was that they can't, oh, bourbon, 
right? Uh, uh, how could I forget? <laughs> or 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 storage tanks, or septic tanks, or stormwater tanks, which 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 we deal with in terms of real estate development. Anything made out of plastic is super expensive, and the wait time is incredibly long. Um, and all of that curtails U.S. industrial activity. Now, is that enough to make the U.S. Let's say, and that was what Trump ran on, right? Was bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., which, which is clearly uh, uh, an issue. It's not just a political issue, um, uh, or or increasing U.S. production of plastic and putting aside other disruptions in Texas that we talked about last time with the freeze in Texas, which took a lot. But um, uh, I think. W- there's, there's, and uh, Kyle, you may, you may have a comment to make. Uh, I'll just finish up here. It takes so long to build a plan. There's such a, 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 uh, there are so many hurdles to overcome in building new plants of whatever they may be for whatever reason that, that the fact that there's a need for it and the fact and the possibility of it happening are, are really diverging. So there are so many structural impediments to increasing domestic production. We did with not with energy, right? With gas, natural gas production and oil production was there was a huge push and it worked to develop domestic production of natural gas. So it became 10 years ago, we might have been dependent on overseas for oil. And now we're an exporter of oil and gas, right? That happened. Market took care of that. I, I don't. I don't know whether that's possible to do it with the manufacturing. What, what do you think, Kyle? No, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a mix, right? Is that part part of the the purpose of the tariffs was to bring certain production back into the U.S. And that's, that's constantly the intent. It's, you know, but as we look at, you know, we're, we're in a scenario where one, we want things to be less expensive. We want to pay less for items. We're worried about inflation. Uh, we have a mismatch between job openings and the number of unemployed people. And it's just, there's, there's limits to what the system can actually take in terms of domestic production, right? Where we've largely moved into being a, a more high tech economy, more of a service economy. And so we've, we've moved away from that and the difficulties of bringing that back to the U.S. are, are far more a systematic issue rather than just building new factories and such. It's, it's, it's very different. And even, even when we look at oil and gas production, right, is that that came largely through technological advances when we think of, you know, we think of fracking and, and what that did to bring domestic production up. And, and so we've made technological advances. Now it's been, there's a lot of jobs that are created in comparison to the number of people that live in the Permian Basin here in New Mexico. But as a whole, it's not, it's not as, not as big as sort of some other areas of the economy. Okay. So 
Another question kind of going back to the jobs and you kind of briefly said it is that how is the, your, the, the federal government kind of like taping, tapering down, um, going to affect those, those that choose not to work because the government's paying for them. Then we taper it down. The, the companies are in desperate need of people to work. And now there's going to be this huge influx. Hopefully people want to go back to work, um, to go back to work. How is that? Well, or is that any kind of, um, concern or, or do you, if that makes sense, because there's going to be a lot of people without, without making any money because they're tapering down and hopefully, you know, stop the free money going out. But, but with that said, is that all these people are going to need jobs and they don't want to work now. So when that huge flux comes in, what, you know, how is that going to, or will it affect? Yep. Well, it will. There's, there's jobs open, which is, which is the good part, right? As people go to return back to work, the good part is that there's, there's job openings now. If everyone were to decide to go back to work at the the same point in time, right, we would have a very competitive uh, space, you know, for uh, for employers, right. right? People are trying to get jobs, and it's likely to drive wages downward. I would imagine if everyone were to go back to work at once, but but people have chosen not to. Uh, we also we have huge amounts of the. I mean, when we look at the stimulus and what was given out. I read the stat today that was like one, 1.3 trillion of the stimulus has yet to be spent. So people, people and companies have, and states and governments have all banked huge portions of the stimulus and the, the amounts they received. And so it just, it gives them time and, and leniency to kind of choose what to do on their own terms a little bit more. The, uh, the tapering has to do with the production of monetary stimulus. It is not the, uh, um, it is not the spending on social programs. That's, that's what's up for debate now in Congress. It's, it's possible that they could reduce the monetary stimulus, but continue the, um, fiscal spending on social programs. That's what the $3.5 trillion program is that they call reconciliation, but it doesn't have anything to do with budget reconciliation. It has to do with a social program, which you may or may not agree with, but it is, it's, it's, it's on the political agenda. There's no concern with how to pay for that. Uh, um, uh, If, if the monetary, if, if the if the amount of of money that's injected the bond buying is curtailed because it was in, increased by a huge degree to get consumers and the economy over the covid shock that's an independent factor to the spending um and all of that is up in the air and and will be decided by congress uh and the new fed chairman which is why there's so much attention being paid to whether Powell gets renominated or not, or someone who's more, when they say accommodative, it means 
more likely to inject government money into the system to support the uh, low interest rates and and uh, eventually the social programs. So that's that a lot of that's in the political realm and not so much in the investment realm. And so are you saying that it w- won't affect the um, investing realm? It hasn't in the past, right? If right. you look back at the last 10 years of investing, uh, the deficit has grown and public spending has grown and the market has gone up all at the same time and inflation has been very, very muted, at least reported inflation. So you have this best of all, all worlds where everyone has more money and everyone has benefited other than savers, you know, retirees on fixed income, right. people who rely on conservative investments, bonds, the, uh, um, unless you're a bond trader, it's impossible to make an income investing conservatively. It cannot be done. And that is a sea change from the greater history of the country where you could make a decent return, not a great return, but a worthwhile return to invest your money to be a lender to corporations and the government. And today that is, that is, you, you cannot do that. So we're in uncharted territory, really. Right. Okay. Thank Good. you. Uh, thanks, Lori. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always appreciate some interaction here. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's important. So we're, we're coming at up on 359 right now, Rob. So I, I think we'll wind it down, but we remain always available to answer questions. Oh, do you have a question, Katie? Please. Oh, let's see if we can unmute Katie and we're happy to answer the question. Well, you were successful in unmuting, but we, we do not hear you. Oh, wow. Here we go. But please, oh. please, Katie, email us your question and we are, I, we are happy to respond. Saying, in sign language, she's saying goodbye and thank you. Is that right? There we go. Excellent. And maybe if we just have our, our team here who hung around with us, they turned off their cameras to support our internet, but maybe we could have everyone turn their camera on again, just to, to give their wave of goodbyes and, uh, very nice this, uh, this past week. Najoni Redmond, who we see on the call here, she's our newest team member. Najoni passed her series 65 exam which is the the initial exam to start working towards becoming a financial advisor and so we're we're very very excited for her and it's a it's a great accomplishment and so uh, congratulations Najoni on that effort thank you very much Kyle I appreciate that great thanks and then uh yeah please anyone that has questions please feel free to just send us an email and um and we're happy to follow up on anything that comes up the Raccoon Group is comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. 
Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in this document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author, do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.